Rachel and I have a friend. She's French, intelligent, stylish, beautiful, witty. Let's call her Amélie, not her real name. But she said I could talk about her, so uh, that's okay. It, it was her birthday recently, and she bought herself an original birthday present, a bunch of self-help books. Let me tell you some of the titles that she bought for herself. J'arrête de crier sur mes enfants. I'm going to stop shouting at my children. L'apprentissage de l'imperfection. Learning to be imperfect. J'arrête de stresser. I'm going to stop being stressed out. Le meilleur de soi. The best I can be. Stop à la procrastination. Stop procrastinating. I asked her, have you started that one yet? She said she had, but she hasn't finished it. Our friend, Amélie, is not the only one buying these books or tapping into these ideas. The self-help industry is a $12 billion industry. For a point of comparison, the American film industry last year was worth $10 billion. Self-help books are having more impact on our society than our cinema and film. Although women are the main buyers at a personal level, corporations and businesses are investing heavily in self-help for their employees. According to the Irish Independent, in 2014, the Irish self-help market grew by 28% on the previous year. Across the Channel in France, we are seeing exactly the same phenomenon. Self-help books are selling by the hundreds of thousands and making their authors very rich. I asked Amélie to talk about herself and her interest in, in self-help, and she texted me back one of the longest texts I've ever got from her. Bibliotherapy is clearly cheaper than counselling. There is minimal risk to the consumer who invests in one book. There is more anonymity in a book purchase than in a relationship with a therapist. This can be especially appealing, especially for people with stigmatising problems. In my case, psychologists have told me things I don't want to or can't agree with. I'm trying to move on differently. For me, it's easier to organize an appointment with my self-help book than my psychologist. Interaction stirs too many things. It's risky. So these books are safe, innocuous, comfortable in a way. And then she broke into French in her text message, she's bilingual. Les gens s'accrochent à ces livres comme s'ils pouvaient enfin trouver une réponse à des problèmes insolubles qu'ils traînent comme des boulets. People grasp onto these books as if they could at last find a solution to problems that they've been dragging around their whole lives, problems that they think are absolutely insoluble. And then back into English, a bit, brilliant image, a bit like a cat falling down. We try to put its claws into anything, even useless curtains. I don't know how you react when you hear that. The image of people falling down like cats, trying desperately to put their claws into something that they can hang on to. Or when you hear that people who buy self-help books, the most likely person to buy one is someone who's bought one in the last 18 months. The new statement comments, never has an age been so certain that it deserves not just freedom from distress, but positive well-being. The worried well, with a belief in their right to feel good, are a lucrative market. Well, this again from the Irish Times. With fewer and fewer of us turning to religion, 
for those answers. The future of the self-help book sector in Ireland appears stronger than ever. Someone comments, I don't get into bitchy conversations since I've been reading self-help. The Economist agrees, self-help books are a new form of religion, according to Bridget Jones. Self-help publishing, they go on to say, is hardly new. The Bible is arguably the biggest selling self-help title of all. It it isn't. The Bible is not a self-help book. Just ask Waterstones in Nottingham. The self-help books are strategically positioned as you go up the escalator towards the coffee shop. Religion, on the fourth floor, the top floor, the floor nobody goes to, right beside modern languages. I've never been so insulted by a bookshop in my whole life. But if I were designing a bookstore, I'd love to put the Bible in there, right beside the self-help books. Not because it is one, but because it is the ideal antidote to those books there. An alternative to the quiet desperation of the self-help market. I'd love to put the Bible right in there with a bookmark in the book of Proverbs, chapter eight. Because we shouldn't look down on people who buy self-help books, who are desperate to improve their lives. I'm one of them. I get it. Sometimes I look at the chaos of my life and wonder how I got here. And when I read and hear about the self-help market, I empathize. I know that people in Europe today struggle with difficult, largely meaningless lives. Cast adrift in a sea of opinions and counter-opinions with nothing and no one to guide them. Bickering with their spouses, resenting their work colleagues, forgetting to pay their bills one minute, and signing up for an internet scam the next. They know that life is more than this, that their life could be better, that they could live wiser lives, hurting others less, being hurt by others less. They know that they could be more skillful at life, especially when life is difficult. They could be more fully human. They want to learn those skills, and so they turn to self-help or counseling or clairvoyance. And I think that we, in this room, can point them to where they can really find help faced with life's problems. Because I find it there myself, and I'm conscious daily of my need for it. Let's read together Proverbs chapter eight. Proverbs chapter eight, verse one, and we'll read the whole chapter. Does not wisdom call out? Does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand beside the gate leading into the city. At the entrance, she cries aloud, to you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all humanity. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to say what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just. None of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, knowledge rather than choice gold. 
For wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. By me, kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern, and nobles, all who rule on earth. I love those who love me. And those who seek me find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity. My fruit is better than gold. What I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before the deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water, before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there when he set the heavens in place when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundary so that the waters could not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, watching at my doorway. For those who find me, find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me, harm themselves. All who hate me, love death. An amazing poem that comes in the introduction to the book of Proverbs where the author is trying to set out why we should listen to the long list of Proverbs that's going to follow from chapter 10 onwards. And see here we have it, the the poem where Lady Wisdom is personified and where we see uh, what she is. We're going to see three things in this text. First thing we're going to see from verses 1 to 21, wisdom in a world of folly. The second thing from verses 22 to 31, wisdom before the world began. And the third thing, wisdom is proved right by her children. Wisdom in a world of folly. In verses one to three, wisdom personified as lady wisdom, as she often is in the book of Proverbs, gets into a strategic position. She gets to the city gates where the paths cross, to the place where she can be heard and seen. And in verse four, she addresses all people. To you people I call out, I raise my voice to all humanity. And in verse five, wisdom talks to two types of fools. You who are simple gain prudence. You who are foolish set your hearts on it. A world of folly means a world of fools. And the two types in verse five are the simple and the foolish. These are not interchangeable types. The book of Proverbs sets before us not only the fact that we are fools, each one of us, 
but it also defines what kind of fool we can be. And so as I explain what two types of fools there are in this verse, ask yourself this question. What kind of fool are you? Not if you are one, but what kind are you? That might seem like a harsh question in a conference where we want to talk about God's love and God's desire to see people saved. Asking that kind of question can seem rude, but it's not. It's bad news that we are fools, but it's good news that someone asks us, what type of fool are you? Because it gives us a chance, does it not, to change our ways and to leave our foolish ways and to come back to God's wisdom. And when we we talk about sin, when we talk about foolishness, when we talk about folly, we're not doing a disservice to people who listen to us. On the contrary, it's good news that we're telling them. We're saying, you are fools, but you can become wise. You are sinners, but you can be justified. You're on the road to death, but there is a road to life. I remember very vividly when I started at university, uh, I was walking back from a lecture, and our lecturer was walking the other direction. And he saw me, and he stopped me, and he said, Philip, can I talk to you a minute? And we both sat down on a small wall uh, just outside the lecture hall, and he said, Philip, you're making a mess of your university career. We're only five weeks in, but if you keep on going like this, you will fail your first year. In not so many words, he called me a fool. He said, you're doing foolishly. You're not doing well. And he presented me with two choices, change and succeed, or continue and fail. That was gracious. That was good. It was hard, but it was good. And so I'm asking the question, what kind of fool am I? What kind of fool are you? As we look at Proverbs chapter 8, verse 5. Are you simple and naive? Are you foolish and obstinate? The simple fool is described for us in chapter one, verse 32. If you turn with me to that, you'll see exactly what the book of Proverbs means when it calls someone simple. For the waywardness of the simple will kill them. The simple fool is the one who is directionless, going nowhere, not knowing where he's going or why he's going there, and continuing in the way he's going, oblivious to the danger that he's in. Chapter 12, verse one, sorry, chapter 12, verse 11, fills this out a little bit more for us. Chapter 12, verse 11. Those who work the land will have abundant food, but those who chase fantasies have no sense, they're simple. The fool who is simple chases fantasies. He's always thinking about the next bright idea that has no substance. Chapter 14, verse 15, is perhaps the most concise definition of the simple fool. The simple believe anything. We, the people we meet, the people in our churches, the people in our neighborhoods, fall into this type of foolishness so very easily, believing anything that they're told. And as they're bombarded in the media with all kinds of ideas, simple fools take it on board and waywardly go their way, a way that leads to death. The other type of fool that's mentioned in chapter eight, verse five, is the obstinate fool, the one that carries the name fool. And he's described for us also in chapter one, verse 32. 
chapter 1, verse 32, the complacency of fools will destroy them. The obstinate fool thinks he's doing fine. And complacently, he goes to destruction. Chapter 26, verse 11 is perhaps one of the best known Proverbs in the whole book. And this is the verse which describes the obstinate fool of chapter eight, verse five. Chapter 26, verse 11 says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Friends, I and you, people in our churches and people around us are just like that. Time and again, we do the same things and expect different results. Folly, sinful folly, madness, but we do it time and time again. We get up late and expect to be on time. We go to bed late and expect to be able to get up in the morning to read our Bibles. We do it time and time again, like dogs that return to the vomit. Have you seen that happen? I've seen it with my own eyes. Dogs throw up and go and eat what they've just thrown up. Silly, complacent, obstinate fools that we are, we do it time and time and time again. And Lady Wisdom is pleading with us and saying, please listen to me. Please change. Chapter 17, verse 12, completes the picture of the obstinate fool for us. Better to meet a bear robbed of her cubs than a fool bent on folly. Nothing worse than a fool, obstinate, hell-bent on doing exactly what he's decided to do. A public danger. My life, our church's lives, our society's lives, too often look like this. There's a third type of fool that the book of Proverbs often talks about that's not mentioned in chapter eight, verse five. Lady wisdom doesn't address this third type of fool. The most dangerous, the most vindictive, the most cruel type of fool that the book of Proverbs has to talk about. That fool we find in chapter one, verse 22. The mocker, the one who scorns things, the one who thinks he always knows best. Our world is full, is it not, of people who mock the very idea of God. And God pleads with the naive and the simple. He pleads with the obstinate fools, but he mocks the mocker. Chapter three, verse 34. God mocks the mocker. God mocks the Richard Dawkins of this world. And here's the thought. How much of our time in apologetics, do we spend addressing the mocker instead of pleading with the simple, naive, obstinate fools that are so influenced by the very mocker that we're trying to address? So, what kind of fool are you? What kind of fool am I? What kind of fools are we surrounded by? Because Lady Wisdom wants, through us, to appeal to them to change their ways and to come to wisdom. Wisdom's first job is to convince us that we are indeed foolish and then to press home our particular type of foolishness so that we're fully aware of that in our hearts. And as we see as Lady Wisdom develops her argument, that kind of foolishness leads to lies, pride, arrogance, evil behavior, perverse speech, disaster, ruin, and death. Whereas wisdom offers us the opposite. Wisdom offers us a vision of the good life. 
If we were to sum up what wisdom offers us as she talks to us, it's the skill to live life well, to live life with poise. Whatever happens, whatever the circumstances, whether the children knock over the milk in the morning, whether the thing people are late for our appointments, whatever happens, wisdom gives us the skill to navigate life's circumstances well. Wisdom offers us, if we push hard enough into it, the chance to become fully human. As God intended us to be living wise lives on God's good earth, according to God's good commandments, and fully enjoying all the benefits, all the good gifts that God has given us. Because you see, wisdom speaks the truth, verses seven to nine. Wisdom always tells us exactly what to do and exactly how to do it in words of absolute truth. My mouth speaks what is true. All the words of my mouth are just. Wisdom is more desirable than riches for this very reason. Verses 10 and 11. Choose my instruction instead of silver, instead of choice jewels. It is more valuable, but we don't believe it. It is more valuable to have wisdom and to live wisely than to have riches in our bank accounts. Wisdom is based, in verses 12 to 13, uh, on the principle of knowing God, fearing him. It's the first principle of wisdom. And this results in a life well lived. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight, I have power. Verse 14. Who would not like in this world to have a reputation for being of wise counsel, living well, being wise, being the kind of person you can depend upon, go to, count on? That is the kind of person we want to be and that's the kind of person that wisdom is offering us the chance to become. Verses 15 and 16 drive the point home. By me, says wisdom, kings reign. Rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern and nobles and all who rule on the earth. Wisdom is the very principle of rule and authority in every sphere of our lives. Our tired lives reel with careless chaos. Wisdom offers us the chance to govern our lives well, to organize ourselves well, to organize others well. Government, good government, flows from wisdom. The wise govern well. Interestingly, Calvin takes this verse and applies it to elders in the church. Calvin says, do you want to be an elder in the church? Be wise in how you govern. The progress of our church and our church plant depends in some measure on the wisdom of its servant leaders as they navigate and negotiate all that life throws at them. Are you an elder in a church? Does wisdom characterize your way of being an elder? Do people think about you as someone who is wise, thoughtful, able to govern well? But we can push this principle even further. And this is where the self-helper needs to listen. Biblical wisdom offers the necessary skills for fulfilling our God-given creation mandate to rule the world and in all its spheres to cultivate and to guard everything God made. And it applies at every level. From the child who needs to tidy his room, to the teenager who needs to study for her exam, to the couple who are trying to manage life as a couple, to the man trying to give up cigarettes or porn, to the lonely 20-something struggling with eating disorders, to the young parents juggling new responsibilities, to pastors who are trying to develop God's work, 
to government ministers managing the National Health Service, biblical wisdom is offering what we need to be skillful in how we manage every area of our lives. To the extent that you struggle with any area of your life, to that extent, wisdom says, let me help. As I bring you back to the knowledge of God, which is the beginning of wisdom, and as you readjust your vision of the world to God's vision of the world. The rest of the book of Proverbs confirms this. All human life is there. Sex, money, power, family, friends, words, anger, patience. Wisdom is offering us, to all of us, the skill to navigate each and every aspect of our life. This is a powerful evangelistic moment. I remember Pascal. Pascal uh, was on a journey towards faith. And he came to me and he said he was struggling with impatience. He was impatient with his son. He hated it. He hated the burst of anger and the angry words that flowed from his mouth unbidden. He was living a foolish life and he was looking for wisdom. He was living a sinful life. He was looking for righteousness. At that moment, he is in a perfect position to hear God's offer of a wise life. And so I said to him, Pascal, there is no hope for you to ever become less impatient unless you understand God's patience to you in Jesus Christ. The beginning of the wisdom for patience in your life is the fear of the Lord, the knowledge of God and his patience towards you. Pascal, because he wanted to be less impatient, started to think about God's patience towards him in Jesus Christ. And one week later, he prayed a prayer of repentance and faith in Jesus to embrace the wise life that God was offering him in the gospel. Take advantage of all those conversations that you could have with so many people that surround you when they talk about their tired lives, their angry lives, their frivolous lives. When you see the quiet despair, talk to them not about self-help, but about help that flows from the wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. I'm sure that will have a big impact in those around you. Wisdom goes on, she loves her own, she bestows riches, honor, righteousness, justice, and a lasting legacy on those who find her by seeking her. Verses 17 to 21. Who would not want a life like the one that wisdom offers us in verses one to 21 of this chapter? I want it, I would sign for it today, straight away. But these extravagant claims that wisdom makes, why should we listen to her? Why should we trust what she says? And that is the point of verses 22 to 31. Wisdom knows that she's said some amazing things, made some incredible claims. Now she's gonna back up. Why she can say what she's just said. Wisdom in a world of folly is possible because wisdom was there before the world began. Wisdom extravagant claims are possible because of who wisdom claims to be. In the context of Proverbs 8, wisdom claims to have pre-existed the created world. Verses 22 to 26, before, 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 in the beginning, in the beginning, in the beginning, Proverbs 8 says wisdom was there. 
Wisdom claims to have been around in Genesis chapter one. It's interesting, if you look at the verses 27 to 29, you'll see six days of creation mapped out for us, six processes, heavens, the deep, the clouds, the fountains, the sea and its boundary, the waters, the foundations of the earth. And then, in verse 30 and 31, a wonderful day of rest, where God delights in wisdom and wisdom delights in mankind. Wisdom was there in Genesis 1 as the principle and the way in which God created. So of course wisdom knows how to live life. Of course wisdom can teach us how to live life because wisdom created life. To, Job's, to God's thundering question in Job 38.4, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Wisdom can say, I was there. I was constantly at your side. You see, wisdom can offer everything in chapters one to eight, one one to 21, because wisdom was there and the means by which all created things came into being. By virtue of its preeminence, its preexistence, its power, wisdom can really offer in life all that is good. Creation is the realm in which wisdom has always excelled. Listen then to wisdom. But that's not all that is going on in this passage. Opinions diverge as to whether what we have in, in Proverbs 8, 22 to 31 is just a poetic device, a personification of wisdom, or whether wisdom is straining at something like the incarnation. Whether the original readers would have been struck by the extent to which the author goes in the description is, is debated. And this passage featured uh, uh, largely in the Arian controversy of the third and the fourth centuries when they debated the divinity of Jesus uh, and they debated about the, the way in which verse 22 was translated, whether it was created or brought forth or possessed. But I think that if we go to the New Testament, if we go to John chapter one, verses one to three, if we go to Colossians, then we'll see that the New Testament authors take this passage and they make it about Jesus. And so I think we're on on firm ground when we take this passage to be talking about Jesus. I think in Luke 24, or in Acts chapter one, when Jesus was going through the biblical theology of wisdom, when he was explaining to his disciples what it was that the Bible said about him in all its parts, he would have lingered over Proverbs eight, verses 22 to 31, and he would have said, that's me. Listen to John one, Uh, one to three, you'll pick up the echoes that we have of Proverbs eight. John one, one to three. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Similarly, in Colossians 1, 15 to 17. You want to turn to that passage too. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For John and Paul, 
Proverbs 8, seen from their perspective, after the incarnation of the Son of God, speaks clearly of the Lord Jesus Christ. But we cannot stop there, exalted though it is. Because Christ, our wisdom, is the architect, the master craftsman, not only of creation, but gloriously of redemption. He has dug under the foundations of the first creation and has laid a stronger foundation, that of his redeeming death and resurrection. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 31. Listen to how Paul develops the wisdom of God for us. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was being preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks do for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. From the standpoint of Jesus' incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection, Proverbs 8, 30 to 31, is an invitation. Look at it again with me. Proverbs 8, 30 to 31. Then I was constantly at his side, I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in the human race. These verses invite us to go back in time, into all eternity, to up into the heights, into all of heaven and to stand beside the Father and to gaze with delight on the Son. Wisdom himself, hurling stars into space, creating worlds, creating our lowly planet. The Father wants us to share his point of view on the Son at creation and to delight in him as he creates us. The Father wants us to stand with him and delight in his Son at the baptism where he says, I delight in my Son. At the transfiguration where he says, I delight in the Son. At the cross where above all he delights in the Son who creates and redeems, unmitigated, undiminished, unblemished, holy joy and love flowing from the Father to the Son. And Proverbs 1, 8, 30 and 31 is an invitation to stand beside the Father and to see the Son.
But there's a second invitation. The second invitation is to stand beside the Son as he creates the world and to share in his delight in the children of men. The wisdom of God delighted day after day, danced before God, took pleasure in creating the human race, rejoicing in his whole world, delighting in the human race. God wants us to feel his pleasure in our souls as we feel his gaze upon us. He wants us to feel his pleasure in the souls of the others with whom we live. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all words, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven. Skeptics used to say that we can no longer say the creed, we can only sing it, since saying it would imply believing it, whereas you can sing any old song. I say that if you really believe Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, you can't just say it. You've got to sing it. You've got to shout it. You've got to dance it. The eternal son of God, the very agent of creation, the very delight of God the Father, delights in the children of men so much that he left his heaven to become one of us, to display the infinite wisdom of God in the cross. We can have wisdom in a world of folly because the wisdom before the world began took on flesh, showed us how to live wisely, and was crucified by fools for fools. Wisdom in a world of folly, wisdom before the world began. And finally, in the last section of the poem, wisdom is proved right by her children. After the exalted heights of verses 22 to 31, the poem ends with an exhortation. Those who have recognized the folly, verses one to 21, and embraced wisdom from God, verses 22 to 31, are no longer called simpletons and fools, but children. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Wisdom's children are recognized in that they recognize wisdom when wisdom comes. In verse 34, wisdom's children congregate at wisdom's house. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, watching at my doorway. In verse four of this chapter, wisdom was there, crying out. Now wisdom is inside the house, and her children are outside, calling out to all who pass by to come to wisdom and to learn. In Ephesians 3.10, Paul says exactly this of the vocation of the church. The church has embraced the wisdom of God in Christ, and now the church's job is to display the manifold wisdom of God, not only to the watching world, but to the whole cosmos. Wisdom is proved right by her children. The wisdom of Jesus' work on the cross is proved right by the witness of the diverse global community of the church. And that leaves us fools, all of us, with a stark choice in verses 35 and 36. Find wisdom, find life, 
find favor from God. Verse 36, fail to find wisdom, harm yourself, and embrace death. So where does that leave us as we go back into our church planting situations, our church situations in general? A few applications and then we're gonna come back to Amélie. First thing, live wisely. What kind of fool are you? Ask people who know you to comment on the kind of fool that they think you are. And don't accept an answer that leaves you feeling stuck. Don't accept any answer that says, no, 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 you're not a fool, you are a fool. Keep on going until that person that you know best tells you what kind of fool you are. People say, but I don't feel safe asking that kind of question. Safety is not to be found in the quality of your relationships, but at the foot of the cross where folly crucified wisdom and wisdom dies for fools. Ask the question and apply the answer. The offer of the gospel is to unite us to the true man who is really wise and to find in him what it means to be fully human. Ask the question. Second thing, minister wisely. Do you have a responsibility in ministry? An area where you're required to rule, however small. Do it wisely, applying what wisdom teaches you in every area. Impossible, you say, it is impossible. Third thing, pray for wisdom. This book is the result of Solomon's prayer for wisdom when God asked him what he wanted. He said, give me wisdom. This book is the result. James chapter one says, if you lack wisdom, pray for wisdom, pray for wisdom. Take your diary out, pray through it. Item by item, God, give me wisdom as I meet this person. Give me wisdom as I prepare this thing. Give me wisdom as I walk through my daily life. Keep me from the folly of my ways. Give me wisdom. Fourth, love Jesus, God's wisdom. He is our wisdom. He is God's wisdom for us. Go to him, love him, praise him, look for him, find him, live like him by his spirit. Fifth thing, preach wisdom. Practically, theologically, Christologically, say behold the man who was wisdom for us. We've been greatly helped by Tim Keller's insistence that sin is idolatry. It helps us to see the sin behind the sin. We can be just as helped, I believe, by preaching sin as folly. Sin is foolishness. It's a powerful way to appeal to our foolish world that is reeling in its foolishness. This foolishness is here in our minds, of course, but it works itself out in our foolish lives. These lives that the self-help market appeals to so often. We can choose either the foolishness of our minds or the foolishness of our lives as a starting point, but let people see how foolish they are and how wise they could be if they come to Christ. Verse 34 is an invitation to plant churches, to plant churches just outside where wisdom lives and to say, come in, come in, come in, come in. Meet wisdom. We've met wisdom, she has given us life. And the last application. Love foolish, struggling people. Because God loved the biggest fool you know. It's the message of verse 31 again. Delighting in the human race. Does that characterize our attitudes and our demeanors as we 
talk to people about the gospel of Jesus Christ, our wisdom? Do we love people who are struggling with their foolish lives? Amélie, French, intelligent, charming, buying a pile of self-help books for her birthday, just like so many other people in our world. She, like all the people who gravitate around her church plants, is part of the humanity that was the delight of God in verse 31. Our church plants glorify God to the extent that they share his love and passion for Amélie and the millions like her. Here's how she summed up her thoughts after reading the self-help books. Some chapters are totally sterile and empty, but sometimes you keep on reading in case something more comes after, something important, something you missed, something you haven't thought of yet, a trigger. I suppose that's why some people keep on buying them. I bought about 10 in one go. I think that'll do me. The search for perfection, she says, improvement, to better oneself is so difficult. It leads to frustration and despair. These books feed on all of that. Amélie, if you ever watch this, the search for perfection, improvement, and self-betterment is difficult. It's impossible. The desire for it is understandable and a great sign of hope. What I've discovered not perfectly, but really, is that the knowledge of God in Jesus Christ is the beginning of a wise life, a good life, a life that honors your creator, blesses your family and friends and neighbors, and the world, because obeying God is the best thing that we can possibly do. And this, this Amélie, this satisfies your deepest longings because God delights in you as in the whole human race. I pray that you reject folly and death, that you find wisdom in Jesus Christ, and that in so doing, you find life. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we repent of our folly in all its different forms, in all its different ways. We are truly sorry of how our folly has brought dishonor to you and how it has hurt other people. Grant us, Heavenly Father, to gaze on Jesus Christ as you gaze on Jesus Christ and to find in him wisdom, life, love, and refreshment. Help us, Heavenly Father, to stand at the gates, stand at the doors, and to point people to Jesus Christ, our only true wisdom, who died for fools like me. Thank you, Heavenly Father.